Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon or wish to make a one-time donation, please visit the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. If you wish to sponsor the show or have any other questions or feedback, please reach out to me at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Uh, today, I have a very special guest here to reflect upon a 100-mile race that she did, I guess it was, by the time this episode comes out, about a week and a half ago. Um, it's uh, my wife, Nicole Bitter, and she ran the Havelina 100 on Saturday, October 31st, ran the second fastest time in event history and what would have been, I think, your second fastest 100-mile time to date. Uh, so we're going to reflect on some of that, the preparation, what it took to kind of get prepared for that, as well as like Nicole's experience through that process, as well as on race day and kind of dive into that a little bit and see what she has to say. But before we get going, I just want to make one quick announcement if you're interested, I am doing a bunch of educational videos and participatory videos with one of my sponsors, S Fuels. So on November 21st, I'll be hosting a short interval session that you can either come and participate or just come and watch because as the folks who are there participating are going through the workout, I'll also be adding some flavor with some education around the hows and the whys of the workout too. So if you're there just to learn, that's fine as well. If you want to come and actually do the workout, that's great as well. But to sign up, just head over to sfuelsgolonger.com forward slash stadium. And you can sign up for my event as well as many other ones. So check that out. Uh, one other thing to throw in there, SFuel is actually currently running a promo through November 21st where they're doing a buy one, get one free on my favorite uh, protein bar that they make. So if you want to try those out, all you got to do is head over to sfuelsgolonger.com, head over to the shop, get one of each flavor check out, enter Zach B 241 That's capital Z-A-C-H-B, the number two, capital F-O-R, the number one, and that'll knock off one of those boxes for you. So it's 50% off or buy one, get one free for that. Um, so that's what we got for, for announcements. Let's bring in our guest, Nicole. Nicole, how are you doing? Good. And those bars are really good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You've, you've had a, had a good opportunity to sample a lot of recovery products in the last week, haven't you? <laughs> yes, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's uh it's always an interesting week following a hundred mile race or actually, or any goal race really, because you kind of go through this process, I think, where you're focusing a lot on your training, you're focusing a lot on recovering from that and you're kind of rinsing and repeating and it becomes such a part of your lifestyle and your routine. You complete the race and it's like, 
a big weight off your shoulders in one regard, but then also you're left with a little bit of time before you kind of start training again, where your life is quite a bit different. Yeah. I think this time I've really been trying to enjoy it. Um, I've really been trying to just soak in what I did and, um, spend the time actually recovering and just try not to get too focused and jumping into the next thing. I think one of the silver linings of the pandemic is there's really not a whole lot of races out there to jump into. So um, Javelina was a great one. It was a nice opportunity to um, get in a hundred miler. But now for the rest of the year, I know that I really don't have another race on my calendar. So I really am just trying to enjoy the couple of weeks and of recovery. Um, our little foster dog Leo's <laughs> throwing in a bit of a wrench into that because he loves the running, but, um, yeah, yeah. Leo was definitely benefiting from your, your activity and willingness to bring him out there. So yeah. <laughs> he's had, he's had a tough week on, on your recovery, but he'll, he'll be back in motion. I'm sure sooner than later, but um, you know, one thing I wanted to chat about because I act, we'll get into this in more detail, but when I watched you race Javelina and kind of just saw you execute loop after loop. And for the folks who are interested, Javelina is a five loop, roughly 19 miles, uh, per loop. And then you do a little extra one on the first one to get you to hundred miles, but it's essentially about five loops total. And as a crew and pacer or anyone just watching from that beginning and end of that loop, you get a good idea each time kind of where you're at, what the target is, the strategy is and all that sort of stuff. And when I look at your race as a whole, I can't really think of a whole lot of examples that were better executions of the hundred mile distance. I think you literally executed about as perfect of a hundred mile race as you can um, is, is essentially a clinic of how to run hundred milers. Is that what your intention was or what was the thought going into that, the execution of that and anything else you want to share along the lines of just the way you kind of strategize the race? Well, thank you. I have to say that's a compliment coming from you because um, you've obviously run a number of really excellent um, hundred milers. Um, I have to say, I just was trying to channel and have a good day out there. So I really just wanted to focus on my own race and really not get caught up in what other people were doing. I've found that in the past, trying to run other people's races just doesn't work out for me. So I knew going into Javelina that I had a really good lay of the land. Obviously, you and I had both um, had done some training runs out there. So I really had a good sense of what I needed to do to have a good race. And then I just tried to lock into that. Um, fortunately, I typically um, do not have a lot of stomach issues and things like that. So I knew if I could just find my stride and find um, the pace that was comfortable for me, I knew I could have a good race. So um, I was just trying to get through those first three loops and then knew you were bringing me home. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that was kind of the strategy going in. Um, obviously, I don't wear a watch, so I didn't really have a sense of what my pace was, but I knew um, just starting out that I was running really within myself. And so I've felt like that's when I have the most success when I just really stick to my own, um, my own stride. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the hundred mile distance is really interesting because I think now it's gotten competitive enough, at least at certain events. And Javelina was certainly one of them this year for the women's field where you have different personalities and different race styles, but if you try to kind of replicate someone else's race strategy, you can find yourself 
hurting yourself versus meeting your full potential. And I think that's one of the things that stood out to me. And we'll talk more about kind of the mindset of that as we get through. I want to make sure we're kind of going through some of this in order, though. Uh, So I want to look back to the preparation before we dive into any more of the race itself, because your preparation, I think, was fairly unique in that we didn't necessarily plan that you were going to run Javelina four to six months ago, like I would have a lot of coaching clients do. A lot of times when I'm working with someone, they come to me and they say, here's the races I want to do. Here's the one I'm really targeting that I want to really kind of showcase my fitness at. And then we start kind of building backwards to get to that point. And, you know, like I said, sometimes it's four, sometimes even six months prior to that goal event. Whereas for you, and I think with a lot of people in 2020, you didn't necessarily have that target race on the calendar early on. So what was, what were you doing, (laughs) I guess, before we started peaking for Javelina um, in terms of training, like what was kind of the focus, what was the structure of things looking like for that? Well, I think the pandemic has been very interesting because we haven't always known if races were going to get off the ground. So I don't even, I I'm not certain as to when Havelina was ultimately approved to go forward, but I want to say it wasn't probably more than 10 weeks or so before the event. So, um, that was certainly unique. We didn't have kind of a lineup of, of races identified like we typically would. Um, but going into kind of this training block, since races were so uncertain, I just decided that I really wanted to focus on speed. And so I felt like the best way to do that was to really kind of target more marathon training. And obviously you were a big part in helping me do that. Um, But I just found that in order to be successful, especially as I am getting older, um, I felt like really concentrating on speed was going to be advantageous, not only just to run a fast marathon, but ultimately to run faster hundred milers. So during the pandemic, it's been really, it was, it was very helpful to kind of have that concentration on speed. And so for probably since March, that has been my focus. So um, really concentrating on getting faster. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a good synopsis? I think. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think it's, it's just really interesting to me because I think it, when I look at anyone I'm working with, uh, and you definitely fit this mold very closely is just the importance of looking at lifestyle along with what type of training strategy we're going to use, because it's, it's just, it, it's too easy. I think sometimes to look at what would maybe be the picture perfect training plan or training setup. Uh, but forget about everything else and then realize midway through, Hey, I I don't have the lifestyle to actually execute this plan properly, or like, this isn't the best plan for me as an individual. So as a coach, like kind of navigating that is always one of the more fun things to do because you have such a variety of differences. It's not just kind of rinse and repeat the same thing with every person. It's like, let's learn this person's lifestyle. Let's look at their needs, their strengths, their weaknesses, and develop something that's going to work for them. And for you, one thing I think I recognized over the last maybe year or so was one, you've had put a lot of time and energy into ultra marathon type stuff, uh, essentially since probably about 2014, 2015. And you have probably one of the most demanding jobs of anyone I know who is very competitive at the ultra marathon distance. You know, we're the sports getting competitive enough where we see a lot of folks that do nothing essentially, but train and race and, you know, work with their sponsors and things like that. And then, you know, but there's still a lot of people like yourself who have a, a full-time job 
your full-time job is incredibly demanding. In most years, you, know, you might travel a couple times a month around the country to uh, for work and things like that. And that kind of puts a wrench into how you train things or it puts a, a variance in how you maybe would prepare. So I think like over time, sometimes that starts to catch up and you need to make some changes just to kind of hit the reset button or to refresh things. And for you, since you had been focusing so heavily on kind of the hundred mile distance the past few years, I thought it kind of made a lot of sense just to go back to some of the more basic stuff, work on some speed development, remove some of that, like kind of, uh, in set or just remove some of that, like need to feel like you have to go out and do back-to-back long runs all the time, or be putting in volume above all else type of a mindset and just work on some of that short interval stuff. Some of those, uh, lactate or yeah, lactate threshold, uh, type workouts and things like that, and really fine tune your speed. Um, you talk to us a bit about that. How does that kind of compare running shorter, faster intervals and kind of hitting that side of the training a little more rigorously versus just going out and kind of preparing for the the specifics of of a hundred mile race where we're going to be doing a lot more volume and a lot less intensity. You know, I have to say, I've kind of, I really found it invigorating. I, I felt like changing it up really was um, fun for me. I, I think that you kind of go through phases and cycles of what interests you, or at least that's what I find for myself. And I think I got into ultra running because I really wanted that change of pace to really focus on going longer. But as time has gone on, sometimes I do find that back-to-back long runs on the weekends are just not necessarily what I want to be doing all the time. So I think just having kind of a change of pace really helped me, um, especially when there was really no race on the calendar anyways. Um, And to your point, I think we figured out that for me, um, the ability to train and do speed workouts was really, this was an advantageous time. I didn't have to travel for work, which really made things easier. So from a recovery standpoint, I really found that I was able to handle all the workouts. Um, I had no injuries, no issues with that. So really having the ability to have meaningful recovery and not be getting on a plane the next hour and trying to change time zones all the time. I I think that rate really made a difference in my training in a way that I hadn't really um, realized. So I don't think, I I feel like I thought I was handling all of it in the past, but it comes to, I I do feel as though it was probably um, taking a toll on me from a recovery standpoint. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that sort of stuff, it tends to kind of happen gradually enough where you can kind of normalize along the way where, it, you, you don't really realize, oh, I'm not recovering as quickly as I used to until you get to a point where it really becomes transparent on like a race result or on workouts and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I think that was one thing that stuck on my mind as well. When I looked at kind of just the way you would express how you felt that you're bouncing back from workouts quicker, you were sleeping much better. And those are really big things. I think that to the recovery side of training, um, I want to talk a little bit about just, um, the, the side of, uh, the side of training that kind of helped you maybe get to October 31st from what would essentially been kind of mid-March. And one thing that I see with, as a hurdle there is if I pick a goal or anyone picks a goal in March, that is going to be due in like October, it can be difficult to really kind of keep 
that goal as your, your motivator, because you might be very excited about it at first, but ultimately once you kind of get in the thick of it, that excitement might wane if you don't have little benchmarks around or along the way. Um, and although we didn't know that you were going to be racing at the end of October, we assumed you would probably do something, you know, maybe a marathon, maybe a hundred miler, you know, something at the end of the year, if, if it presented itself, but what did we kind of do along the way to kind of help you see like improvements and see benchmarks made to kind of keep that motivation or like those goals in sight, uh, with some smaller things that would help, help kind of keep that motivation high. Well, I think that's your, um, good idea there, um, to just have me, um, do little mini kind of time trials. So I really was trying to see, could I, um, run a faster half marathon, a faster 5k, 10k. So we really went through and went step by step into training for those. And in the process, um, I was able to set new personal bests or to the best we can figure out. I don't even remember what I was doing in the 5k when I was younger, which is sad. Um, but it really helped to have those mini accomplishments along the way because I felt like it was documenting that I was making improvements in my training. So for me, being able to quantify that, I think was really um, helpful from a progress perspective. So um, I now have a new half marathon and 5K PR. And <laughs> we kind of got sidetracked with the 10K. I think we were going for that, but then... Um, you know, we started going more towards like an actual marathon, but we'll have to come back and do that. I I'm also very lucky because you're able to do a lot of the workouts with me. So you can kind of do your base pace training. And while I'm, um, doing my, my time trials. So it really helps to have you out there, especially when, um, remember how hot it was. It was yeah. probably getting, a, <laughs> we were doing workouts in 95 degree temperatures at like 5 30 AM. So, um, I yeah. think, yeah, <laughs> I, I remember some of those, it would be the, the, we would do it or we'd be trying to pick oh. a day during the week to, yeah. to target something. And it's like, you've like, Oh, today's it's, if we, if we start at 5 AM, it'll only be 89 degrees when you finish, yeah. <laughs> which isn't ideal at all. It was for a fast so hot, but <laughs> you know, we got it done. And so it's good. It's probably shows that if we went out on a cooler day, mm -hmm. we can definitely make more progress, but just kind of breaking the barrier of 18 minutes in the 5k was cool. Um, things, little things like that really helped push me. So I thank you for that. That was helpful, especially in a time where there was, maybe not always um, a lot to look forward to and turning on the news was not always, you know, the most optimistic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Feeling like you accomplished something, I think really helped me kind of, you know, enjoy the pandemic time um, of this year of 2020. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I kind of talk about two things sometimes with that type of structure. And one is when I'm working with someone like yourself, who's just a very hardworking individual, a lot of times what I see with, with folks like that is that they know that they're putting in a lot of work. Um, and when you put in a lot of work, you expect some merit from that. Like you expect an outcome if you're going to invest that much time and energy. So kind of having some of those short-term goals very highlighted so you can check things off the box along the way helps folks who work hard, like you continue to work hard and continue to stay motivated. Is that something that you find kind of that crosses over for you into life in general, or is that unique to you for running? Yeah, no, I think that definitely resonates with me. I think 
I really like to check off boxes in terms of like what I've accomplished. Um, and so I think having kind of those benchmarks really was helpful. So yeah, mm -hmm. I think that that's definitely something that I felt was good about this training block. Yeah. And it, it does kind of snowball too, from a confidence standpoint, like if you can PR and something that you've spent some time working at in, in the past, then, you know, you're, you're finding a position that you maybe have never been at before. And, uh, you know, when you start snowballing that confidence, you find yourself in a really good position on, on race day, I think, as long as you kind of stay within yourself and don't overreach on some of those sub goals. No, agreed. I think it just got me in a really good headspace for purposes of racing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I definitely want to get to that part. Cause I think the mental approach of this race is something that really stuck out to me as a, is a huge win for you. But before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about the goals that you had on race day and just kind of what our thought process was when you did decide, because I think we decided for you to do Javelina maybe about six weeks before, uh, or we had about, I want to say we had about five or six weeks where you could really specify the hundred mile intensity and the hundred mile type workouts, which is, uh, about where I like folks. I usually am looking at six, maybe eight weeks of just really, really specific race intensity stuff in order to do at the end of a training block to really get you ready for the mechanics and the specifics of the day. Uh, and we kind of had right about that timeline. Uh, so once we kind of got through some of that training, did you come up with some time goals, place goals, or any type of thing like that going into the race? Not really. No. I mean, I think going in, I just really wanted to feel strong and have a good day. I think we somewhat talked about based on kind of your metrics that I could probably target pretty close to 15 hours if I had a good day. Um, and I think that's what I was kind of working towards, like a low 15 finish if I could. Um, but really the highest priority was just enjoying the day, really just feeling like I was running my own race, not focused on other people. Um, I just wanted to feel strong and kind of knock a race out of the park, doing it kind of my own way, which I felt like I hadn't really done for the last couple of years. So um, that was really the goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think you, you had the perspective really well. Cause I think one thing that I always have to be mindful of is I like to geek out on some of like the projection and the data stuff, but you can, you can do a client or you can do yourself or someone else that you're helping a disservice. If you start putting in benchmarks that are so far reaching or are so like kind of top performance that they feel like if I don't get this, it was a failure. When in reality, there's a variety of goals. There's like your top goal where everything goes perfect. This is maybe where I could be. If I have like a really good day, but not my best day, this is maybe where I'd be. And then you can kind of start scaling down so you can, you can really get an understanding. Um, and I think for you, you know, the thing that stuck out to me was we went out to the Havelina course and did two loops. So it ended up being, uh, you know, roughly 36 miles or something like that on the course in the heat of the day. And for folks who are, and for I folks who are remember. curious about Havelina, a lot, most years, what happens is the first loop is relatively cool. Cause you can still get that cool, dry desert air in the morning. But then by the time you get to the second, third and fourth loop, it really gets hot. Like some years course record temperatures, it's hit 102 degrees. Most years it's in, it peaks in the low nineties, but you're so exposed. Those three middle loops can just, they, they're, the, they're what determine the race a lot of times. So when we did that two loop 
uh, practice run in the heat of the day and you averaged about an 8.30 per mile pace for that, I started kind of running some numbers thinking that running around a nine minute pace is something that is a manageable target for you, which would put you at around 15 hours in that kind of low 15 hour range for a hundred miles. Did having that, like what, I guess maybe what I should ask is what level of confidence would you say like that, 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 that cornerstone workout do in terms of your, uh, your belief that you could run a time that fast at Javelina? Yeah, I think that that workout really was a confidence booster. I just have been feeling so strong that I felt like I I was in a good position to run a strong race. I I did have confidence in my ability to do that. And just kind of having that benchmark that um, I had run about that pace and felt pretty comfortable for two loops. And really, we didn't do a very good job of like hydrating and <laughs> it got really hot that day. So I think with all those factors, we knew, okay, three weeks later, it's going to be a lot cooler. Um, it's just going to be more manageable. I think kind of having that benchmark workout really was beneficial. So I did go into the race feeling confident that I, I felt like unless something kind of bizarre happened, I could run a pretty, a pretty strong race out there. Um, I think the last loop, unfortunately, I had a bit of a, a stomach issue issue, which for me is, is a little unique, but I think had I not kind of experienced that, probably even just the 15 hour range would have been more in target, but I felt great. Um, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah, I want to get into kind of the, some of the specifics of the race in a bit here, and we can talk about kind of how the loops compared and maybe where some spots where you could find some improvement in the future if you wanted to, uh, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, look at that a bit, but also I want to look at just some of those kind of the mindset going into a race, because one thing I find found interesting about this particular situation was when you decide to do Havelina, you decide, okay, here's my goal. I'm going to run my race. I'm going to just do what I know is best for me. And it's, I think that a lot of people intuitively know that that's the right approach, but there's a lot of distractions that can sometimes kind of get in the way of, uh, of, actually executing that. And then, you know, you can't always control your emotions either. So when things happen or things change that are out of your control, you have to kind of stick to your plan, but you also have to be cognizant of like your emotions and just get kind of keeping them in check and things like that. And, and for you, I think the thing that was, uh, impressed, the most impressive to me anyway, as a coach was, uh, just kind of how things played out. I think you got to a position when we were in taper mode about two weeks out where you were pretty confident about what you needed to do. And you were in a good headspace about just running your race and not paying attention to much else. Um, and then uh, kind of last, last minute, uh, Camille Heron decided to join the Havelina hundred uh, about a week, week and a half before the race itself. And for folks who aren't familiar um, Camille's an amazing ultra marathon runner. She's got multiple world records, world championships. She's very good on runnable courses. Um, the the heat may be something that was unfamiliar to her a bit compared to some of the stuff she's done in the past. But uh, of course, like Havelina would look like something that Camille would just be able to come there and nail. Um, I think Camille can run a very fast time on Havelina if she executes it properly. So having her kind of enter the race near the end. It's no fault to her, obviously. She's welcome at any race she wants to do, but it is something that I think, you know, someone like yourself who was in a position, I think, to compete for the win, 
um, regardless of whether your approach is going to be run within yourself or otherwise, it's just another variable that you didn't necessarily consider four weeks before the race that now all of a sudden you have to consider, uh, at least in the back of your mind. Yeah. I mean, again, I think the great situation here is I wasn't really running to win. That wasn't really my goal. I really was focused on running my own race and feeling strong. I I felt like if I had that, I had really done what I set out to do. And I consider Camille to be a phenomenal athlete. She's amazing. You put world record associated with anything. I have no world record. So um, I really just figured if Camille hit it out of the park, then that was, that's great. She was going to have a great day. I just really wanted to see what I could do out there. And I wanted to run a fast time and put something meaningful up. Um, and that's kind of really what I focused on. So just knowing she was in the race, I knew she probably would start out quite a bit quicker than me. Um, and I probably wouldn't be running with her and, um, that's essentially what happened. So, um, I really just kind of, I had run the race in 2017 and I personally started out too fast for myself. Um, so I knew that I was not going to make that mistake again. So I really was, I really went into the race focused on running and executing my plan. Yeah, that's a really good point, too, because you did have the added advantage of in 2017 starting the Havelina 100. And you were very fit going into that race, too, from even a speed standpoint. And we've talked about this over the last couple of years, too, where um, for someone like yourself who doesn't run with a watch and kind of runs by feel, it was almost like you kind of had a little bit of a different training strategy. And it was maybe hard to really dial in perceived effort for Havelina that year. Cause you just hadn't gotten maybe used to training the way you had. And perhaps that resulted in you getting out a little too hot in the early stages and paying for it. Um, knowing that going in, was that very helpful in determining how to kind of hold back? Or do you think it was maybe more important of just kind of relearning what perceived effort was like and how that felt for the hundred mile distance when you're doing a little more speed work in the early stages of training? I think both of those were huge advantages. Um, just having the background, the experience on the course, and then having the the appropriate training this year, I, I think both were really elements that were beneficial to me going into the race for sure. Um, I always think if you know what the course is like, that makes a big difference. Um, I also, in 2017, I was having some... Um, leg issues. So that's ultimately kind of was, I, my body was just probably a little bit too beat up to handle another hundred miler. But, um, I think, yeah, having that experience definitely made a difference out there. So I really was sticking to my plan in Mm -hmm. 2020 of, um, doing my own thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I look at just the splits that you put up on, on the race this year, that's the thing that I think I get the most excited about sometimes uh, I think going in, my thought was if this was five loops of exact same distance, you should be targeting kind of just under and just over three hours per loop. And that's where we came up with that kind of low 15 hour goal time. Um, the, the, the one thing that you have to kind of navigate on this course, is what I said before that first loop, you actually go, I think it's like t- about 23 miles, just so you, the remaining 19 mile loops come out to being in that, that hundred they're actually 19.2 miles. So they come out to be a hundred miles exactly. So that first loop makes it a little less comparable because you're running a little further. 
but since it's cooler, I still thought, you know, at fastest, I'd like you to come in at like just over three hours. Um, and I thought like realistically and under three hours and 20 minutes would be a really good first loop for you. Talk to us a little bit about that first loop and kind of where you came through and how you were feeling. Um, in terms of the first loop, it was really just starting out and finding my, my stride, finding the appropriate pace. That first loop is nice because it's cool. It's, you start out in the dark. So, you know, you want to run a bit quicker in my opinion than you would some of the later loops, your legs are fresh. I just wanted to make sure not to go overboard and just, um, kind of get into a quicker pace than would ultimately work out for me. So I was fortunate. I met a friend on the course and, um, locked into good conversation and that made the first loop go by very fast. Um, and so really the first loop, when I finished, I was, I kind of came up to you and felt like hmm, that, that went by, um, relatively quick. I can do another four. Um, I don't know what my split was. I think you said three Oh five, maybe was my first loop. It was like three Oh five, three Oh six, somewhere right around there. So I felt like, you know, I'm obviously then I, I had a good first, first loop based mm -hmm. on your, your time prediction. Yeah. You know, it was whenever I crew and pace, uh, I think especially probably for you being that you're my wife, it's like super nerve wracking. And I know, you know, what that experience is like yeah. pacing and crewing me as well. But, uh, when you came through that first loop, I saw you come through and I was paying very close attention to just kind of like the way you kind of presented yourself coming into the aid station. Cause the one thing I was looking for is like, I want to, try to confirm that Nicole's having fun out there. Cause I know for you, like if you can have fun doing what you're doing, at least for the, I mean, eventually it's going to get very difficult and you're going to have to just like put your head down and grind. But you, those first couple loops, they loops almost have to be fun or you're going to find yourself just mentally burning out throughout the course of the day. So when I saw you come around in that kind of low three hour time frame, my first thought was, okay, that's about as fast as I would want you to come through there any faster, I'd be worried that you kind of pushed the gas pedal a little too hard the first loop. And the second thing I was kind of looking for was like, how were you feeling? And you came in uh, about as optimistic as I've ever seen you on a race course. And I asked you, I'm like, are you feeling okay? And you said, yes. And, uh, and then I, I quick ran over to the spot where you would kind of cross over back onto your second loop, uh, just to kind of talk to you about pacing a little bit. Do you remember much about that at all? I remember seeing you, but I don't, I don't remember the specifics a ton. I think you just kept telling me to keep running my own race. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think I was, I think I told you if anything, just kind of ease off. ease off a little because okay. like what I see, like you can go, I think if you run on the faster end of what you're capable of for that first loop at Javelina, you kind of got to be careful in the second and third loop, not to accidentally overreach a bit, because if you're already kind of flirting with, uh, that, that line, and then you go out and step over it on the second or third loop, from my experience, that's where you give back a bunch of time on that last, that fourth and fifth loop. And I know that because I've done that exact thing yeah. <laughs> in, in 2016, I ran Javelina kind of on a whim. And then I did again the next year with more preparation specifically for, and I actually ran slower because I did that exact thing. I overreached a bit on the first loop. And then I kind of kept that gas pedal down a little bit too much into that second loop and third loop, and then paid for it dearly on the fourth and fifth. So I was just thinking to myself, don't do the same thing I did in 2017. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And I think I just, I, for whatever reason, I found my groove this race and just kind of knew I, I just felt like I was running the, the appropriate pace. It just felt like I was doing my thing. I think I was in third at that point. Um, and I was comfortable with that. I, I thought that was a good place to be after loop one so early in the race. Yeah. That's something that stuck out, stuck out to me too. You didn't seem to be too concerned about you know, the competition or anything at that point, you just, you knew you were doing what you could do and you knew what you were doing was the sustainable approach. You just had to keep doing it and see how the, you know, essentially the following 12 hours would play out, which is a lot of time. (laughs) Well, and essentially we live on the sun. So I felt like we're very equipped to handle a hot day. So I was actually hoping for heat just because this is where we, this is our home. So kind of having home court advantage and knowing that I knew how to deal with the the hot times, if they came, I, I knew, you know, running outside of myself early on, like you said, was just going to, um, results in a, in a bad fourth and fifth loop for me. Mm-hmm. This episode of HPO is sponsored by Swanson health. Swanson health has been producing quality vitamins, supplements, food, and beverage products, healthy home products, and self-care products for over 50 years. Swanson Health offers a full spectrum of wellness products for mind, body, and home. From quality vitamins and supplements, to cruelty-free beauty items, to eco-friendly home products, Swanson Health is here to keep you healthy. Swanson complies with both FDA and FTC standards, ensuring that consumers can trust the label information and safety of all their products. Swanson Health only supports products they are proud to use and give to their own families, backing everything by strict quality standards with the Swanson Quality Code. Swanson is committed to purity and potency from raw ingredients to the final product. They rigorously test their products internally and externally for purity and potency. Swanson Health carries around 18,000 wellness products at a great value. Pick up all your favorite health products, plus discover new ones for your wellness routine, all while leaving money in your pocket. Swanson Health ships orders all over the United States, Canada, and even internationally. If you would like to try any of Swanson Health's great products for yourself, use code HUMAN20, that's capital H-U-M-A-N, the number 2, the number 0, for 20% off site-wide and free shipping on orders of $50 or more at swanson.com that's s-w-a-n-s-o-n.com all right folks now back to the show yeah i think after you finished the first loop my thought was if nicole can kind of stay on target i'll likely see her come through the the second and third loop uh just under three hours and that would kind of give you that 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 cushion to stay on target for a low 15 or maybe even put yourself in position to dip under 15 if that opportunity presented itself. Can you talk to us a bit about those two loops before you picked me up to start pacing you, loops two and three? Yeah, they just kind of flew by. I just kind of kept doing my own thing. I really wasn't worried about anybody else in the race. I wasn't really seeing a lot of people. Um, and so I just kept focused on running that same pace. And I think I ran like almost even splits, like mm-hmm. those those next couple of loops. So it really didn't get very hot in my opinion. So I think high eighties was all the temps reached. So it was a little bit toastier on the third loop. Um, but 
the cloud cover, I think, kept it a bit cooler than the temps would than we would typically see on that course. Um, I just did a really good job of continuing to hydrate, um, trying to keep fueling. And yeah, I felt, I felt pretty strong. And then I knew when I saw you on that fourth loop that you'd be excited and, um, it would be fun to have your company. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, if anything, I think I was probably too excited to, (laughs) luckily you had your head focused enough where I didn't distract you too much with all that. But, um, when you came through loops, loop two, and I think it was like a low two hours and 50 minutes, uh, I was like, okay, that's a great, that's a great second loop. So then I, I wanted to like, uh, kind of just process that, but also still pay attention to kind of how you're feeling, make sure you're staying on top of hu- fueling and make sure you're staying on top of hydration and topical cooling. Cause I think on courses like Havelina, one of the biggest mistakes people make is they don't spend a little bit of extra time in aid station, putting like cold ice water on them, wearing ice bandanas and things like that to kind of keep their core temp down. Um, like you said, this year was maybe a little different where it wasn't blazing hot for loops two, three, and four for you, but it still was very warm for a loop and a half of those three. So can you talk to us a little bit about your strategy going through aid stations from a cooling hydration standpoint? Um, well, I probably didn't do as much as you would have <laughs> wanted me to, but um, I really, I don't really like to carry a lot. I only like to carry one water bottle at a time. And I mean, I know we've, we've talked about this and argued about not in a you know bad way, but we've kind of had debates about the water bottles, but typically what I do is, so I can just carry one is I'll drink a whole water bottle at, um, at an aid station and then fill it up and take it out. So it's almost like I go through two, I just stop a little longer, but for me it works. And that's just how I've always liked to run. Um, for whatever reason, I don't like the two water bottle approach. So, and I didn't really want to wear a pack for this. I wanted to stay like, I felt like I was running and feeling kind of lighter. So I just really tried to make sure that I was drinking enough And I think I did a really good job at that. Um, I was using a bit of topical cooling, although not as much as I would have if it got a bit hotter. Again, living on the sun in Phoenix, I really didn't, it didn't feel that bad for me. Um, And we had just had such a hot summer this year that I felt really heat adapted. So that was beneficial. Um, I think in terms of fueling, I did a good job with that. Um, I was starting to get really sick of, um, sugar at a certain point in the race. So trying to find other options, but yeah, I think I had a pretty good, I mean, I think I executed on that end pretty well. Yeah. You were very consistent. I think uh, one thing that stuck out my mind about your, your fueling strategy was, I mean, you did essentially what, what I typically like to do for hundred miles, which is kind of have a, a strategy for some like kind of more fast acting engineered fuels that are going to be uh, useful in small quantities for a good chunk of the day. But when you're out there for 15 hours, there gets to be a point where I think like you almost get a little bit of palate fatigue or just, you need something different or maybe even something that's more whole food. Uh, talk to us a bit about kind of the transition from uh, like using some of the on race fueling, some of the S fuels race plus stuff, as your kind of your engineered fuel source that you could just put in the bottle versus what you kind of transitioned to on, I think it was the fifth lap. Yeah. For whatever reason, by the fifth loop, I, I usually, again, have a really strong stomach. Um, but, you know, probably with the heat, it was taking a toll. It's always just hard when the temps 
are at that level. But the S fuels had served me well. Um, cliff shots, I think, you know, I did really well. Somewhere around the beginning of loop five, I just started to feel a little queasy. Um, and I found my new friend, Avocados. So <laughs> um, they were at the aid station and that was really, uh, that was kind of became my, my favorite food item for the rest of the race. I don't think I ate anything else. Um, I got a little sick there on the fifth loop. But after that, I, you know, I was able to finish strong, but thanks to avocados, um, mm -hmm. I, I made it through that last loop. Yeah. And I think like for you too, like one thing we've worked on a lot the last couple of years is just kind of having a little more structure to your race day fueling where in the past you kind of just did that a little more intuitively, which I mean, it certainly worked for you in the past, but sometimes I think from even just a peace of mind standpoint, kind of knowing like, or having a little bit of a process in there can be helpful so that you can just trust what's going on versus like hoping it's going to work. Yeah. I've just found, I don't like to have as regimented of a race strategy as a lot of people do. It's just not how I like to run. I feel like I have a really regimented job. Yeah. <laughs> and so for me, that's enough um, planning everything for that. So from a race perspective, I've always kind of preferred to have a looser approach. Um, but that being said, that can backfire if you don't have really any checks in place. So I think to your point, just having a bit more being a bit more in tune with what I need to do, not just being so much on the flying by the seat of my pants has um, started to pay off more. I'm definitely fueling earlier than I used to more. And I think that's beneficial. Um, so yeah, I can get away. I don't need probably as many calories as some racers do. I I'm pretty probably fat adapted too. Um, but that being said, I, I think I've made great strides in the last couple of years there. Yeah. I mean, I would 100% agree. I think your fat oxidation rates, although we haven't taken you into a performance lab and tested them to get some of those numbers. I mean, they're, they're definitely high. It's like, there's no way they can't be based on the way you kind of consume foods in your day-to-day -day life. And I mean, we've tested your, your blood ketone levels before and you put up, I think, I think the last time we tested, you were like 2.1 millimoles, which is very much burning. There's no way around having high fat oxidation rates if you're putting out those numbers. Uh, so for you, you're defending muscle glycogen to a very high degree by just being good at burning high rates of fat at the intensities you're going to use at hundred miles. So when we talk about kind of the carbohydrate side of your fueling strategy, a little bit is going to go a long way because you're not going to be just tearing through muscle glycogen at the rate you would, if you were eating like a moderate to high carbohydrate diet. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, you're, you're right too. Like the heat, I think plays a role in that too. You just, you can't eat quite as much when it gets really hot. In a lot of cases, it, it, it just adds an extra hurdle to try to get over. But I think you navigated that as about as well as possible. Um, and you know, having a hick, not, a, I won't say it's a hiccup, but having like an obstacle to get over in a hundred mile race, I think sometimes people look at it as, oh, that's where I, it wasn't perfect for me. But in reality, when you're running for 15 hours, something's going to happen you didn't expect, and you're going to have to respond to it as best you can. And that's just the reality of the sport. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many minutes it slowed me down, but it, I mean, yeah, it probably did have an impact. But to your point, that's what 100 miles is. It's figuring out how to problem solve because there's always obstacles, right? Like having just one obstacle is actually pretty amazing for a 100 mile race. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was about as well executed as I think you can expect. And um, 
I want to, I want to switch back over a little bit about just kind of how the mindset maybe shifts during a race, like the one you had, where you spent what was essentially the first three and a half laps. So about 70 miles, uh, kind of running your race, focusing on what you could do, knowing like I'm doing what I need to do to produce the fastest time I possibly can on this day. Um, and you were doing that from behind, you were in either second or third place all the way up into that point. And then we went through, uh, the middle aid station. That's about 10 miles into that loop, uh, about 70 miles into the course. And, uh, you unknowingly went from second place to first place, just going through that aid station. Uh, I had been told by one of the, the volunteers that, that Camille who had been leading all day had been, was sitting in the, in the med tent there. Uh, I think she overheated a little bit and, uh, you, you passed her at that point. Did your mind shift at that point knowing, okay, now I'm in the lead for the first time of the day at mile 70 into a hundred mile run? You know, I think in, in most situations it would have, but not really. I mean, did you feel like it really shifted much to me? I felt like I kind of just kept thinking I've been trying to run as fast of a race as I can. So I think I just kind of more or less stuck to that same approach. I don't remember at the time really feeling like it made a big difference. I, I was kind of worried about Camille because I think, you know, that's, certainly scary with, um, with the heat, but I, I don't remember at the time. I mean, I probably was fatigued enough. I really was more focused on, I want to get back to the headquarters before it gets dark because <laughs> I want to have as much time running in the daylight as possible. I think that's what I was mostly focused on that second half of the loop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think uh, to answer your question, as someone who's crewing and pacing, um, I can afford to be a little more emotional. I think you got more excited <laughs> than I was, but I kind of was like, well, that's, I mean, it's right. great to be in the lead, but I mean, well, that also means I have to like stay in the lead. So I just mm -hmm. kind of knew I had, I still had a big chunk of the race to run and I've messed up, um, the last 20 miles of hundred miles many a times in the past. So I figured I really just needed to stick to my plan. Yeah. I think, uh, it, to, to reflect on what you just said there, I think it was like my thought about what you were doing. And I was just super impressed that you, you basically just stuck to your plan and said, okay, yeah, the dynamics of this race just shifted, but that doesn't change what I know I have to do in order to have my best day. So you kind of just kept going um, and, and didn't really let that impact what you were doing and the decisions you were made for me. I mean, obviously I was excited because I wanted you to take the lead um, probably as much as anyone out there, but, uh, you know, I, I recognized pretty quickly, I think that, you know, getting overly excited about that wasn't going to necessarily do you any favors. So I tried to kind of contain myself a little, contain the excitement a little bit and just make sure you were still doing what you needed to do. Cause you still had 30 miles to go. Like you said, right. I mean, a lot can happen in that last 30 miles. Oh yes, it can. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the end of that loop though, I thought was very solid. Like I actually really love that section of the Javelina yeah, course where, section. yeah, do you want to talk, do you want to talk about that section? Well, you know, it's just like flat and fast. So for people like us that like that kind of, um, topography, it's just really nice. I love the course because it has kind of the first section that's more of an uphill grind. Um, it's not, it's very runnable, but you just have to slow the pace down a bit. And then the second half is predominantly downhill. So um, it really just feels like you are kind of um, flying in a bit. Um, and so having you with me, it just felt like we were kind of on the canal path in Phoenix, just kind of running our typical pace. So 
Um, I guess it was a trail, but it, it just felt kind of like a normal, more like road run almost. So I do like um, how the course is set up in that manner. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that always sticks out to me about that part of the course is the hardest part of my opinion is you get to the first aid station a little under four miles into the loop. Then you have like a 6.6 mile, slightly uphill. The most technical part of the course, other than that little add-on loop you do on the first part. Uh, so it's the hardest section between aid stations. So you kind of have, you, you kind of over the course of the day start to load that section. But then the next section is that gradual downhill for about five miles into the last aid station before the headquarters start finish area. And you can almost just kind of recharge your batteries a little bit and still make up some time in there. And I always watch that section because I always find that for myself and for others, if you start having a weak, if you have a weak spot on loop four coming down that, it's kind of a sign that that last loop is going to be a struggle um, because it's an easy part of the course to run well. So when you were like knocking out, I think you were hitting like 830 pace or something around there down that hill. I was like, okay, this is perfect. That's right where you want to be. Um, and that got us in, in finishing the fourth loop and ready to kind of go up for your final loop of the day. Yeah. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about that, that final loop you're in the lead, the, the, the sun's going down. We had to kind of turn on the headlamps. Uh, for me, the first time of the day for you, the second you start with a headlamp since it's dark at the start, but that quickly, it becomes unnecessary until, um, until you get to that part where the sun sets again on the other end of the day. And, and we're heading out towards that first aid station. Talk to us a little bit like what your process is there, where you're going into that last loop, knowing every time I pass something I've seen four other times, it's going to be the last time I don't have to go by that again. Yeah. By that point, I just started to get really tired and my stomach had kind of turned. So that was the hardest part, probably the first half of that loop. But I just kind of kept trying to break it up into milestones. So get to the next aid station. And you were really helping me there. I think I had my um, iPod that was really helpful, just listening to music, trying to kind of distract myself. Um, but I think once I kind of got sick and um, I think somewhere late in the um, first half of the race, after that, I my stomach kind of um, turned a corner and I felt a lot better. And then I was ready to kick it in the last nine miles. And you, I remember getting kind of annoyed at you because you <laughs> told me I was going too slow or not too slow, but you said you need to run a bit faster. And I was like, <laughs> like, I think I'm running fast enough, but I remember thinking, no, no, he's just trying to encourage me. And you did it in a very kind way. It just was at the point in the race that I was tired. So mm -hmm. I knew, okay, I want to really focus on having a strong finish. So I followed your lead and, um, just picked up the pace and I knew I was capable of it. So I didn't want to just feel sorry for myself and, um, kind of slowly, you know, jog it in. So, at that was helpful just knowing that I, it helped me turn it up a gear, just try to really concentrate on the music and talking mm -hmm. to you. Um, and then we hit the last aid station and we knew we only had about four miles. Um, I think I had to walk a couple of minutes in the first part of the, the last journey. I, um, on a couple of Hills, but after that, I just, tried to get to the cinch trail. And I knew from there, I only had a mile back and tried to kick it in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think like one thing that 
kind of stuck out in my mind in terms of just trying to kind of help you find, find the day you were looking for was, was one, you know, getting to that first aid station after we had a little bit of a hurdle nutritionally. Um, Cause it was, you were running slower that first four miles than you had on the first four loops. Uh, so I thought, okay, we're going to get to that aid station, make sure you take care of yourself there and then have a strong run up to, to that middle aid station, 10 miles into that last loop. And it was kind of what I didn't expect if I had to guess before the race was that that four miles going into that first aid station would be the struggle point. And then you'd be really strong going up that hard section to the middle aid station. Um, but it ended up being the opposite. I think um, I was nervous going in, going through that first aid station, but then once you kind of got through, we walked for like a minute out, you got some avocado down, some plain water down, which I think was good. Cause you were, you were getting a little, little sick of anything flavored at that point. So the plain water, I think sat a lot nicer in your stomach and, and, and you just, you made really quick work relative to what, what we needed you to do on that way up to that spot. And then coming down that next section, I was just kind of watching the pace a bit, uh, just knowing like this was a good spot for you to improve your finishing time. And one thing I thought about during that section was just kind of the mindset of having 90 miles in your legs and being in the lead and not likely in a position where you're going to get caught, even if you slow down versus what you think about maybe a week or two after the event, if you kind of take your foot off the gas pedal a little there. So I was watching our pace going down that hill and I saw it was kind of flirting around the mid to low nine minute pace. And just based on kind of how you had executed so far that day, my thought was if you had to, you could, you could branch down to low mid eight pace in that stretch. And uh, even though you didn't need to, and my thought was, well, you, you, you'll run maybe five, six, seven minutes faster by pushing a little harder and a week or two after the race, looking back, you're going to be way more happy with how that went by picking up that extra few minutes versus leaving them on the table and then asking yourself a week later, oh, why didn't I push a little harder there? So I felt comfortable uh, nudging you along a bit there and you responded. I think, yeah. I think we, the way we tried to do it was when we were two miles down from that middle aid station and about three, three and a half out from the last aid station, I just said, okay, here's the plan. Let's, let's try to run mid eights for that next three, three and a half miles. And we get to that aid station. We'll give you a mile to kind of just get comfortable and run whatever pace feels good. And then we'll, we'll hit the gas for the last couple, couple miles and bring it strong. So it kind of gave you this opportunity to look at it as a couple intervals versus what would have been, I guess, about seven, seven and a half miles left. Yeah, no, I really appreciated the nudge because I tend at the end to get tired. And I mean, I'm, you know, I just kind of start to, I, I was, um, I was probably getting sleepy and yeah. my legs were sore. So no, having you there, um, meant the world. And, you know, I think it's, you were helping me. So I just felt so grateful that you were out there and encouraging me. So once I kind of was like, oh, he's, he's doing it for all. He's just trying to help me go faster. It really gave me the motivation to um, pick up my pace and, and follow your lead. So no, that was really helpful. And I do feel in hindsight, I'm so glad that I did. Yeah. It's, it's just such an interesting difference in mindset. Cause in mm -hmm. my mind, I'm thinking, you've executed 90 miles about as perfectly as we could have expected. And the last thing I wanted to see is you to leave, leave a handful of minutes on the table, that last 10, when you had done all that work, all that hard work and training, and then that first 90 miles of the race. So that's kind of where my, my mind was, but you know, it's hard to appreciate sometimes too, 
because even though I did two loops with you, I still had way fresher legs probably. <laughs> well, I don't know. Needed. You had run 200 miles that week. So <laughs> that was another thing in the back of my head, like, oh, I'm actually can't even really complain at this point. You've already, you were close to having that 200 threshold in a week. So I really didn't have much to say. Well, I'll, I'll be honest. I thought like before I started pacing you, like before I even got out for a run that day, my thought was hopefully I didn't do too much training and get dropped by Nicole in these last oh. two loops and then <laughs> have Nicole finish ahead of me in the, even though I'm the one pacing. And it's really never happened yet, <laughs> but one of these days it is, I still, I you know. Drop your pacer. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, I think, um, talk to me a little bit about, you know, I think one of the things that was interesting about this race is we did have the opportunity to get out and do the course, not, not the whole course, but you can essentially do the whole course by just doing one loop. So by doing a fifth of it, you see the whole thing. And we had the opportunity to get out there a couple of times where you did a single loop and one time we did two loops. So you can, you start to recognize landmarks. And I think that really helps kind of pull you in. Can you talk about how some of that, like finding these landmarks that were, you're more aware of than maybe you would have been if you had never been on the course before? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, this felt like a home court advantage, right? Like I felt like by, by going out and doing some practice runs, I just felt really confident and I had a good understanding of the course. Um, so no, I, I really looked forward to hitting milestones on each loop. So just getting to the halfway point, I always got excited knowing that the the second half was downhill, little things like that. I felt like were motivational in this race. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then when we got up to the, near the finish line, you can kind of see, you can hear probably a lot of the finish line music and stuff, maybe about half mile to three quarters of a mile from there. And then you, you kind of go around this little turn where you can see this finishing shoot when you got about a quarter mile left. What were you thinking about when you knew at that point, I met my goal, I'm about to finish it. This is, uh, you know, the end of a, of a long project. I just really wanted to know what my theme song would be because <laughs> I knew that I had said, I, the race organization's wonderful. So, um, era Vipa, I had gotten a message that I could, um, pick a theme, uh, like a finishing song. And I said, I just wanted to be surprised. So going and turning that corner, that's really what I was thinking about. Um, I also was just so thankful that you had run the last 40 miles with me. So just knowing that I was finishing with you, it always just makes it so much more meaningful because you, like you basically got me there, right? Like you coached me through all of it. You, were by my side on all the workouts. So just having you finish with me, um, is probably what I'll remember. So, um, yeah, no, I was just ecstatic over the moon. I felt like it was such a silver lining of the pandemic, just getting the opportunity to run a race and feel strong all day. Um, felt great about all the training. So it just, everything came to fruition. So, I think having a couple of bad races in the books sometimes really gives you that fuel that when you do execute well and have that good day, just soaking it all in because they don't always come around all that often. So who knows, maybe this is my last hundred, you know, and <laughs> just soak it all up. Yeah. I mean, my, my prediction, there'll be a few more, but, uh, I'll, we'll let you make that decision. <laughs> yeah, I, I would hope so, but life's short. And so just knowing that I, um, I had a great race that that was meaningful to me. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it always feels good to have like that high end goal get accomplished. Cause there's, I mean, in reality, there's only so many of those you can expect over the course of a, of a running career. So when they happen, I think it's important to actually step back and reflect and, and, and be grateful for kind of the opportunity you had and all that stuff so that you don't kind of find yourself wishing you would have uh, spent time kind of doing that sort of things later on in life. So this one, I think you did about as good a job as, as any I've seen in terms of just really kind of stepping back after the race and reflecting on kind of how things went and, and also recognizing what you just said, which is that, you know, there, there are going to be a lot of like races where there are, um, you know, small failures, big failures, which I like to look at as learning experiences. <laughs> and, uh, you know, for me, I felt like this was for this particular event, you did as good a job as you ever have, if not the best job you ever had at actually looking at previous things that maybe didn't go perfectly or as well as you would have liked and said, okay, this is what I can pull from those experiences in order to have a better day today. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think I had done a lot of introspection um, during the pandemic time because obviously there was the opportunity to do so. And I really was kind of reflecting on what I wanted from running. Um, and I think just figuring out why I was running and what I wanted to be doing from a running perspective really was helpful going into this race. So I'm, you know, again, silver lining, really thankful for the time to have that reflection. Um, I felt like I really turned a corner in terms of my personal um, relationship with running, which I think had gone through a really rough patch. Um, so just having kind of the just really, when I look back at Havelina, I was smiling because I wanted to be there. And if I have to be honest with myself, probably for the last couple of years at races, I don't know if that was really the truth. So I think that was um, really meaningful to me that I actually wanted to be out there racing. Um, I was really doing it for the right reasons. And so, um, yeah, no, I was just it, it ended up just being really meaningful to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think, uh, I think you, you summed it up perfectly there. A uh, uh, couple more questions, um, logistic stuff. What was the shoe of choice at Javelina for you this year? I used the ultra Torrens, which are not trip typically trail shoes, but they were excellent on the course, but they're, I really wear them for everything now. I love the shoe. Yeah. That the, the Torrent 4.5 plush, I think personally is the most well-rounded shoe ultras made so far. I think it fits the widest variety of feet. And for a course like Javelina, where it's definitely a trail, but it's also pretty hard packed in most places. So that full rubber outsole definitely will work there. And it's not usually wet at all. And it's, you don't really need a lug on that course. Uh, you actually might want a little bit of a wider um, outsole. Cause there are those wash sections where you get the sand where you have that wider outsole and you can just kind of almost like, I don't want to say snowshoe over it, but that's kind of like the direction you maybe want to start like aiming towards when you're picking what, what to wear there. Um, but yeah, you've been, that's, that shoes worked really well for you. Um, it was a, is a good choice. I think, uh, last, last thing, or uh, last couple things, what's on the horizon race wise for you? Oh, I don't know. I, that's a good question. Um, you'll have to help me find a good one, but maybe, <laughs> Ooh, I get to choose. <laughs> yeah, maybe a marathon just to kind of actually put all of the training to use. Um, so, mm -hmm. well, I mean, that's essentially what worked well for you here. And I think it matches a lot of what my coaching philosophy is, where if you're going to essentially do marathon training, 
leading into a future ultra marathon, especially if it's a hundred miler, it just works well. Cause you do some of that shorter, less specific stuff earlier in your plan. And then you have yourself the opportunity to specify for the course you're going to do eventually too. And I'm, I'm going back for, I don't remember what number, but Western States, um, hopefully, um, God willing, it takes off in the summer. So, um, we'll be getting ready for that next year, 2021. So, so I can answer that question for you because someone actually just asked me that the other day, it'll be your sixth entry into Western States and your fifth. No, no, I'm wrong about that. It'll be your seventh entry into Western States. And if things go well, your sixth finish. Um, I qualified in 2014. I didn't start because I was injured. I had a calf abscess, which it just couldn't, couldn't do 2015. I got sixth 2016. I didn't finish. Um, 2017, I got sixth. Mm-hmm. 2018, I think I got 17th. 17th. Or what about 17? Sep, sep, sep. Oh, you just said 17. Yeah, 17, I got sixth. 2018, I got 17th. 2019, I got seventh. And that takes us to today, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, because so, no race 2020. So, so is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, what, what Western States certainly took up a lot of your racing calendar to date. And I think it'll be fun to assuming everything gets off the ground with that one this year will be, I mean, you have the, you have the timeline to essentially do what you, what you maybe want to do, which is target a, a marathon between now and maybe late February, early March. And then, you know, come April, May and June, start really specifying for what, what you need to be able to do on a course like Western States. And, yeah. um, I, for one, am excited to see how that plays out. Oh, thanks. No, it's good. <laughs> I mean, it seems like that's the race that calls me back. So um, feel good about a lot of my finishes. I think I can always give a little more, but um, it's, yeah, I, I, I feel fortunate that I've gotten to do that race so many times. Um, but it's hard to turn down that race when so many people, it's kind of the coveted North American race to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think when you feel like you can give a little more, that's a good sign that you'll be motivated to put in the work and and target what you're capable of. So um, I always say like, when you, when you don't feel like you can give any more, that's a good time to pick something different because you've already actualized your, your potential. (laughs) Well, and it it does seems like for 2021 travels, probably still not going to be on the books for my job. Um, So assuming that comes to fruition, that sets me up really well from a training perspective. So um, if I can, just have the time and really train. I think that's, that's a big win for me. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day and joining me on the podcast, uh, locally in person. We don't have a whole lot of those on, on HBO, but, uh, if you could, where can our listeners find you if they want to check in with what you're up to? Um, I'm on Instagram at NK bitter. Um, and I'm on Facebook at Nicole Kelladropolis Bitter. So if you can find that, that's a big win for you. Um, gotta love that name. But yeah, we'll definitely link those link those into uh, the show notes and uh, if their listeners can go give you a follow on those social media platforms and check into how things are going between now and, and what comes next for you. Thanks, you'll probably see a lot of dog pictures. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, Nicole, thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at ZachBitter.com or my social media channels at ZachBitter on Instagram 
at ZBitter on Twitter and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.